These are the things that I learned during the third week of 2011, January 17th through January 23rd. January 17th, Apple Business Stuff. This one leaves open for interpretation what I was exactly meaning when I wrote this down. I can think of maybe two possible divergent things that I was learning, one of which was probably the granular details of Apple business, partner relations, and support contracts, and overall financial benefits, all that jazz when it comes to Apple and business relationships. This particularly would have been in the context of the TV station just recently purchasing new hardware to replace old Macs with brand new ones. We purchased two new Mac Xserves, and they would be the final Xserve models that Apple basically ever produced, as the Xserve line was officially discontinued on January 31st, 2011, just a few weeks after this date in favor of consolidating their hardware down to Mac Minis and Mac Pros with server components instead. Standard consumers generally don't buy server hardware from Apple, and often you are in a business partner relationship with Apple if you're even considering it. The TV station was an Apple business partner, effectively. The other angle of this thing that I learned regarding Apple business stuff was the scenario where I was working at the university's media lab, which also contained Apple enterprise and server hardware such as the Xserve, XN, fiber channel configurations, Mac Pros, and all of that traditional video setup nearly identical to the TV stations but officially university-owned, and we also had someone working there who was working part-time at Apple as well as a business relations partner, and I believe it was part of either the job training or just general information distribution that we learned a bit about the Apple business partner relationships from this person who was working there. So it was really a two-pronged thing that I learned it was one of those things where I didn't really recall any specific information other than just the general idea of vendor relationships beyond just the consumer level, but more at the macro business level of things. And this wouldn't really be a complete thing learned if I didn't attempt to go back to the apple.com slash business page from a snapshot from this time period and clicking around through it it is basically what i recall it being where you can establish a relationship with your business to theirs you can organize purchases additional resources may be available to you you may get discounts and you can get tips and assistance as well as consultation fast forward to current day where I don't work with Apple now, I work with Microsoft much more often, and it's very similar to working with a technical account manager, or TAM, where you just kind of have access to services such as folks that can assist you to connect you with support resources, or answer questions for you, or provide all that kind of assistance. 
effectively the same things that Apple provides as well. In closing here, the thing that I'm really getting at is that this was one of the first times I was exposed to a business partner relationship situation, and the contextual information that I learned here was really helpful further down the road into the future when I started working professionally outside of school. To this day, I'm doing a lot of the same things, just with a different company. But it was very, very good universal knowledge in general. January 18th. The difference between DDR2 and DDR3 RAM, parentheses, speed. And must I say, that is a very elegant way of putting it. DDR RAM, or Double Data Rate Random Access Memory, is what a lot of computers, mostly PCs, used to be Macs, not quite sure if it is in the Mac anymore with Apple's custom chips, but DDR RAM is very standard and very common in most computers. It goes through various generations. In this case, we're talking about the difference between DDR2 and DDR3 RAM. DDR3 RAM was coming about around this time here in 2011. DDR2 was very prominent, but it was time to transition to the newer and faster DDR3 RAM standard. Comparing the two side by side, it's not incredibly exciting, but you can notice that DDR3 jumps in speed generally across the board, both in clock rates, internal rates, transfer rates, channel bandwidth, voltage, and of course, overall speed. To abbreviate it and say that the main difference between DDR2 and DDR3 RAM is speed is pretty correct, and it's also insanely simplifying it here. The most important thing, though, is that DDR2 and DDR3 RAM are not intercompatible with one another, despite looking generally the same. Electrically, they are not, and you can't just stick a DDR3 RAM stick into a DDR2 RAM slot. That will probably bust your motherboard up pretty good. This means basically you don't really get to just upgrade RAM standards unless you upgrade your computer in some way, and often that involves switching out the motherboard to a newer generation motherboard. And then you have to go out and buy new RAM to match that spec. At the time of this recording, and based on what I can research online from a quick search, we are up to DDR5 now in terms of the very latest RAM standards, in case you were wondering. Personally, I've kind of fallen behind in keeping up with the RAM standards. I've had the same desktop for nearly a decade now, and that was back in the DDR3 days. And prior to that, I had a desktop that was using DDR1 RAM, and then in the middle, I used a laptop that had DDR2 RAM. So the timeline was the desktop with DDR1 RAM from about 2004, then a laptop with DDR2 RAM from around 2009-2010, and then a desktop using DDR3 RAM from late 2012. So I kind of had a sampling of each DDR RAM standard from 1 to 3 between 2004 and 2012. I've kind of fallen off the wagon in terms of 4 and 5. So, 
it is only natural that I haven't really kept up with whatever standard it's on now, as I haven't really built any traditional PCs lately where I've needed to pay attention to what kind of RAM goes into it. My newest computers have lately been tablets or laptops or systems that have RAM that is not upgradable or soldered on. Therefore, you don't really need to know what kind of RAM it is because you'll never be touching it or manipulating it. While yes, that sounds simpler, at the same time, I'm kind of more the type that likes to upgrade hardware, and I'm not necessarily sure I'm okay with this trend of hardware being less upgradable over time. But that's a topic for another day. In closing, yes, the differences between DDR2 and DDR3 RAM is mostly speed, and it's not super exciting. But it was nice going through a little retrospective as to what DDR RAM is, and I hope you enjoyed it. January 19th. AirPrint only works with a few printers. Sometimes I really like being on the cutting edge of technology, and I like things to be simple. And in particular, I really dislike printers. We'll just let the record show for that. I'm quite sure a lot of you too share this sentiment. Don't you hate just setting it up and installing drivers and some junk software that it comes with and hoping it all works and then being really frustrated when it just doesn't work for unexplainable reasons, like it's complaining that it's out of ink when it's not, or it's out of a particular color of ink that you're not even planning to use when printing, or the whole thing just jumbles up and errors out for no explainable reason. I kind of despise this. So Apple also kind of thought of this as well, and they decided to try to alleviate this issue, at least from software, by introducing a protocol called AirPrint, Apple's own standard for printing to printers from their devices. It was introduced in late 2010. So this thing that I learned that AirPrint wasn't quite working with a lot of printers just yet was maybe a little bit unfair in retrospect. Nowadays, if you buy a printer in the modern era, there's a good chance that AirPrint is supported out of the box, or you can at least very easily check the product page if it is indeed supported, and that's really helpful. This of course only really applies if you have Apple devices. If you're in the Google world with Android, Google has its own cloud print service, that of which I know less about. Maybe in the future I will learn about this, but we'll stick to the current topic at hand. But AirPrint is really, really easy to use from Macs or iOS, where often it's as simple as the device will just find the printer and you can just print to it without having to install anything else. It's just using the built-in operating system feature of AirPrint that the printer has built into it and the operating system that you're using has built into it and it couldn't be any more simple than that. It is accurate at the time of writing this thing that I learned down that very few printers were AirPrint compatible, only about maybe fewer than a hundred, but in present day, it is in the thousands, and that is a significant improvement. If your printer is also not AirPrint compatible, there also may be some software intermediary solutions that you may be able to use to make it compatible with AirPrint. If it were up to me, I would just want printers to go extinct, to be totally honest. But if we must deal with them, and if we must still have to print things, 
I appreciate that there are methods of making it a lot less painful than it has been in the past. Now if only we can solve the problem of printers demanding that you have magenta ink installed when you're simply only trying to print in grayscale. I can dream, can't I? January 20th. Miscellaneous YTMND fads. Welcome back to Random Internet History Ramblings with Steve. Long ago, in the very early 2000s, long before your Snapchats and your TikToks and your Instagrams and your Facebooks, and even before your MySpace and maybe before your Zangas, there was a little website called ytmnd.com, which is short for You're the Man Now, Dog which itself was a quote from the movie Finding Forrester, said by the actor Sean Connery. The website was basically a meme website. I guess that is what they're called today. Back then it certainly wasn't. But it was a website where users could upload an image. Maybe it was animated, maybe it was a still. And it was generally tiled across the screen and then you could put some text over it, usually kind of in this quirky 90s style word art fashion, and then you can put some audio under it, usually like a 10 to 30 second looping clip that is then played over and over and over, possibly along with the animated image, over and over and over. And the link to the page would be really simple and you would just link that to whoever you wanted, on forums or instant messages or emails, wherever you wanted it to go, really. Bear in mind that this was from a different era of the internet. This was from a much slower dial-up modem-based internet. Not everyone could just load up videos as they pleased. No, sometimes it took a while to even just load a picture. And YTMND was sort of a proto-YouTube of sorts where instead of getting full videos, we would maybe just get animated GIF images with some sound underneath. And both were really, really, really compressed, and they were edited for time and for best loading optimization. And that was about all you could get in the early 2000s up until maybe about 2005, 2006. And it was popular. It was really big, especially on forums where if you just needed a meme or some response, or needed to, I don't know, make a joke out of something, YTMND was the place to do it. It was a very, very popular website. Over time, of course, as internet bandwidth got better, and the general zeitgeist of the internet and appetite of the internet changed over time, along with different demographics and users coming on board, it just naturally shifted to other things. The rise of YouTube definitely didn't help YTMND in terms of staying relevant. To this day, the site still exists, but I would say it's pretty much on its last legs. Not a lot of folks are really talking about it anymore, and it's usually spoken about in a historical context, sort of like how I am right now. In fact, the site sometimes has issues even staying up, and there have been discussions on how to preserve some of the content of the site, particularly if it was based on technologies such as Adobe Flash, which is going away 
or by the time you are listening to this, has probably already gone away. So what were some of these YTMND fads, you might ask? Well, one of them, of course, is one I might have already mentioned, which is the website's namesake, which was the Sean Connery, You're the Man Now, Dog, quote. And another major one was the Picard song from Star Trek The Next Generation, which was just a looping remix of Captain Jean-Luc Picard, stating that he was Captain Jean-Luc Picard of the USS Enterprise, over and over and over. Like I said, this was from a different era of the internet, where it was much easier to be amused by shorter things, not only because maybe that was just new to us, but also the technology could only offer that to us instead of being a full, high-quality, feature-length video. YTMND.com is still around to this day, and it looks like they're at least still trying to keep it relevant with topics that they encourage users to submit YTMNDs on, and you can browse the top-rated YTMNDs both on the site and on the YTMND wiki. Both are subsets of YTMND.com. The website does very much still feel like an old-world internet website, even down to the fact that YTMNDs are rated on a scale of 1 to 5 stars, which you don't seem to see all that often anymore. Remember back when YouTube switched from the star rating to just likes and dislikes? For all of its flaws and its possible dwindling relevance in today's internet, I still appreciate that the site still exists, and it definitely carries a history factor to it, as well as nostalgia. How else are we going to explain where memes came from a thousand years from now? January 21st. Engadget journalism isn't that great. Parentheses. See the Oracle Java copyrighted code fiasco. Here we have a little snapshot of tech journalism not doing very well. In January 2011, there was a string of articles posted by Engadget originally, which had rather questionable and haphazard research put into it, reporting on the Oracle Google Java copyrighted code lawsuit, and taking a particular blogger's post at his exact word without necessarily verifying it, and just jumping to conclusions. This led to a fairly large backlash over the internet, with many counterclaims, redactions, and updates and clarifications that made it seem overall really sloppy to read. We begin with an article posted from Nilay Patel on Engadget, which makes a rather definitive and open and closed claim that supposedly Google stole some code from Oracle regarding Java programming in Android. And it was a very brief article it seemed to just take a couple of postings from a blogger named Florian Muller, that pronunciation may not be perfect, forgive me, and the words that he speaks are repackaged in a post from Engadget with a very finger-pointing tone to the article. There is then an updated clarification posted also by Nilay Patel, also on January 21st, 2011, with a very quick clarification, and the tone of the article feels like it had to backtrack 
and provide explanations as to why the previous article was so pointed and direct in its accusations. It was later also discovered that the original blog poster that Engadget sourced the information from may have had some biases and connections to Oracle that may not have been initially known and may have tainted the original opinion from a neutral manner to a more pro-Oracle manner. To make matters worse, the code that was accused of copying Oracle was actually just test code and never actually made it to any production system, which more or less invalidated the entire original article that Engadget posted. It is kind of amazing that they didn't really necessarily go out and verify this, and instead they tried to maybe save some face and try to provide some quote-unquote context and explanation around it, but the original point mostly still stood where it was test code, it wasn't production code. Just because it may have been lifted word for word didn't necessarily mean it was being used for monetary gain, and it was just for testing purposes again. The overall point here was that Engadget didn't necessarily have all of their eggs in a basket and all of their research put together in a coherent fashion when they posted the original article. The original source was slanting the material in such a way that really should have been looked at under a bigger lens rather than just posted word for word, even going so far as to compliment the original blog post as he was quote-unquote killing it based on previous supposed good contributions. Nowadays, we have the advantage of history, as this was nearly a decade ago at this point, and in April 2012, according to his Wikipedia article, the author of that original blog post, Florian Muller, stated that he had been hired by Oracle. Right there, you have a bit of a conflict of interest in the whole grand scheme of things, especially when looking back. Engadget really should have known better, and maybe looked to verify the integrity of the original source. This was where I sort of became wise to tech journalism, and I started to realize some sites may not necessarily have very high-quality posts, as they don't necessarily research whether or not the facts are straight, or if they're slanted, or biased, or anything like that. Eli Patel is no longer at Engadget, he is now at The Verge, I believe he has gotten a little bit better in the years since, but that original post from back in 2011 really left a bad taste, and that so much so caused me to write down as a thing that I learned to really be careful about a lot of tech journalism in particular, as it tends to have a lot of folks who are really trying to break into the field, and the more folks you have, sometimes you might run into a bit of a quality problem and they may not necessarily always verify everything, and that is important. It is also a bit important to make sure that there is pushback when such articles are posted, such as the rebuttal articles from ZDNet and The Guardian and others. Dialing it back to just me, though, this was important because around this time I had a smartphone and I was just looking to ingest any kind of tech news that I possibly could because I now had the ability to just pull up these websites from my pocket at any point. It was good reading for eating or any kind of situation where I was just idle and needed something to do. But it was indicative that 
I needed to be careful about the quality of sources that I chose from, and I shouldn't just go down the entire line of tech journalism and read everything, taking it at its exact word. So, not to completely dump on Engadget here, but they were just one of the first ones that I had to raise an eyebrow to. It is important to make sure you have a good editing staff that can possibly catch and prevent articles like this from making it out to the internet, because the damage control may end up being catastrophic. Something that is also important is that these websites may not necessarily stay the same forever. People come and go, hands may change in terms of staff, and things may improve. So always just keep an idea on the names of the authors and the editors. And be sure to read with a very critical eye. January 22nd, moving user profiles in Windows 7. I had a friend who was a fan of keeping his user data very separate from the operating system, and that helped a lot when he would either reinstall his Windows computer operating system, or upgrade it, or transfer hardware, or whatever he was doing with his system at the time. In Windows, there is a fairly easy way to move your user folder to another spot, say another drive, and then you just update a record in what is called the registry in Windows to point to that new location. The only complication is you need to make sure that you are not actively logged in to the users in that folder that you are moving because it's kind of hard to move something that you're actively using. Windows would not be very happy about that, of course. It is pretty useful knowledge, for sure, especially if you want to get into Enterprise and set up something called roaming profiles in Windows. It is definitely good practice to try it at home, although most people probably won't really ever need to do this, but it's good to know that it's possible to do this. If you ask me personally, I would never really want to do this because just the way I store data is a little different. I don't really care so much about my local user profile on a computer because I store all of my data and files either in cloud services or on a separate drive different from the user profile folder or on network attached storage. So I already have my stuff in a different location anyway. I don't really care so much if my computer blows up because my data is safe elsewhere. The only things I really lose are maybe small configuration files, or maybe a Firefox profile or two, but again, the bookmarks and such are synced elsewhere, so it's not a huge, huge loss. There have also been sporadic reports here and there that if you move a user profile to another drive or to a non-standard, non-default location, you can experience unexpected problems when you're upgrading Windows, or certain applications may not exactly be coded to recognize that the profile folder is in a different spot. It is most unfortunate that little glitches like these come up, but that's another risk you take when you move away from the default configuration. When I learned this, this was sort of in a pre-cloud era though, and it was mostly before I had any semblance of separating data from the system or profile in general. So, 
it was a nice little stepping stone and the first step for figuring out ways to keep your data separate from a computer in the event that the computer blows up or the future would yield more cloud-esque options. And finally, January 23rd, shining laser pointers at airplanes is very bad. I don't know what it is about this podcast where we finish episodes on silly things, funny things, or very obvious don't-do-this things, but here we are, once again, things you should never ever do, because not only is it recklessly dangerous, I think it probably is illegal, I would surmise, based on plenty of articles just googling laser pointer plane, where folks try to shine a laser pointer, perhaps at a low-flying plane, and that is immensely, immensely dangerous, because you are risking reflecting off of who knows what, blinding the pilot, and putting countless lives at risk. So a little things learned public service announcement here, do not ever shine a laser pointer at a plane. Any time of day, any time of night, just use it with keeping your cats entertained responsibly. Never, ever, ever, ever invoke laser pointers on anything involving people, moving vehicles, and I'll extend this past planes. Let's say don't even do it with people on bikes or cars or anything. I shouldn't really have to make this PSA because it sounds like common sense, but you never know who's listening. So I will say this, do not ever shine laser pointers at anything that could end up in people's eyes. That can lead to temporary or permanent blindness, depending on how powerful the laser is. The only lasers that should ever go towards eyes should be lasers involved in LASIK eye surgery. We have reached the conclusion of Things Learned during the third week of 2011. Again, I want to thank you very much for listening to Things Learned. If you are a long-time listener, thank you for listening to yet another episode. And if you are a brand new listener, I thank you for coming on board, and I hope you stick around. If you feel you enjoyed this show, you may feel free to subscribe to it wherever you get your podcasts, wherever that may be. And if you have any feedback, please feel free to leave a rating wherever you rate podcasts. Again, wherever that may be. It may be Apple, Google, or who knows. Search Things Learned and you'll likely find it. Things Learned is a mostly weekly podcast, at least at the time of this recording. It is produced, created, edited, all by yours truly, with some assistance from various folks who provide royalty-free music. If you are interested in what this music is, please check out the show notes for this episode, and I will include all the details down there. Again, thank you very much for listening to Things Learned. It has been awesome talking about these seven things learned for this week of 2011, and stay tuned for more episodes, and I will talk to you next time.